I'm going to ask Daniel if he would come and read to us. He's going to read from Matthew chapter 21, which you'll find on page 988, I think it is, of the church editions. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there and with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell him that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their coats on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus entered the temple area and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? they asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read, from the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise? And he left them and went out to the city, out of the city to Bethany, where he spent the night. Early in the morning, as he was on his way back to the city, he was hungry. Seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it, but found nothing on it except leaves. Then he said to it, May you never bear fruit again. Immediately the tree withered. When the disciples saw this, they were amazed. How did the fig tree wither so quickly, they asked. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. If you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but also you can say to this mountain, Go, throw yourself into the sea, and it will be done. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. stand together. You might like to open your Bibles again at um, that reading that Daniel read for us. It's on page 988 of the copies of the New International Version that's in the pews. It's Matthew chapter 21. And I want to do two things with this this morning. I want, first of all, to take a few minutes to talk a little bit about the overview of what happens really from Matthew 21 to Matthew 28. And then I want to take a little time to think about the verses that Daniel read in uh, particular this morning. You may remember if you were here last week that the young people helped us think about two chapters of Matthew's Gospel, chapters 19 and 20. 
um, because you really need to take them together. They have a, an opening and a conclusion which are very clearly linked. And in the same way, in this one this morning, really from the beginning of Matthew chapter 21 to the uh, end, you've got something that's happening, certainly to the middle of Matthew 28. You've got a whole lot of stuff that's happening in a very short space of time. Um, so far in Matthew's gospel, three quarters of the book has covered almost a period, a period of almost about three years. The last quarter of Matthew's gospel is dedicated to one week primarily in the life of Jesus. The previous three quarters covers, what, 150 weeks roughly? But the last quarter of Matthew's gospel is all about the one week just imagine how long Matthew's gospel was if each week of Jesus' life received the same amount of treatment as this particular week. And it's true with all the gospel writers. If you look at the various gospel writers and their accounts in the Bible, nearly all of them have the bulk of their material focused on one week of Jesus' life. With John's gospel, it's nearly 50%. is all focused around the one week now, truth is not determined by percentages of print. There are lots of politicians and others who think that their message will be deemed true if it gets more column inches than everybody else's. And it's not the fact that this is the bulk of the Gospels that makes what they say about this issue more true, but what is important here is it's very clear where the truth about who Jesus is and why he came and his death and resurrection is the core of what the Gospels are communicating to us. And I think it's worthwhile thinking about how this holds together and the many encounters over this week. And in our theme of thinking about the kingdom of heaven, that's what I want us to do over the next couple of weeks together, to see how in these chapters this theme is brought to a climax um, by Matthew in his gospel. Now, the other thing about this is um, that if you sit down with Matthew's Gospel and you start at chapter 21 and you start plotting the week out according to what Matthew says and then turn to Mark's Gospel and do exactly the same thing and then go to Luke and to John, you'll find that it's not that easy actually because some of them have things happening on one day and some have things happening on another day, which is really very interesting. I have pinched, and I will acknowledge so that if I've breached copyright, um, I'm not going into too much trouble. Um, the events, a chronology of the events of the last week of Jesus' life, according to Matthew 21 to 27, from the IVP dictionary, Jesus and the Gospels. I also have an NIV study Bible, and you'll see in a minute, um, that the, the structure of the week, according to it, is slightly different. And there's a lot of debate about this. But what's interesting is all the main events are agreed the timing is slightly different, and it raises questions for us. Did they not know what they were doing? Were their memories bad? Or are there other issues? And as we'll see with Matthew this morning, part of it is other issues. John, for example, in John chapter 12, uh, verse 1 and verses 9 to 11, indicates that Jesus spent some time at Bethany before he went into Jerusalem. That's why we had the sketch last week set in the context of Lazarus coming to prepare the way for Jesus and the disciples arriving in Bethany. Um, it would appear, according to many folks, that actually his entry into Jerusalem took place then on what would be our Monday. But you can read about that in Matthew 21, Mark 11, Luke 19. And that's hotly debated. Some people think it was the Sunday, which is why we have what we refer to as Palm Sunday, the entry into Jerusalem. Others argue, no, it was the Monday. 
On the Tuesday, there was the incident with the fig tree, which Daniel read to us. But of course, in the passage that Daniel read to us, there's no distinction of days, really. Certainly not at the beginning. Um, Verse 18 of Matthew 21 suggests that it was the next day, obviously. He had spent the night, verse 17, in Bethany, and the next day he's going in. So you think that was day two, but most people would argue that really this is getting into day two and day three because some gospel writers split this event over two days. On the way in, the fig tree is addressed. The next day, the fig tree is dead. But the clearing the temple incident in Matthew's gospel appears to happen on the same day, if you just listen to the text as Daniel was reading it. But Mark makes it it very clear that it was the next day that Jesus came back in and the temple was cleared. So you can see the kinds of issues that there are to look at. But as I say, the main events are all agreed. It's just the timing is slightly different for different reasons. Wednesday was a big day. Well, depending, of course, when you have the entry into Jerusalem. But Wednesday seems to have been a big day. And we're going to look at that as a whole in a week or two's time, where we watch all the people making their approach to Jesus to challenge his authority. The chief priests and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the elders and the scribes. And the way they keep coming, one after the other, to challenge his authority. And it's a day when Jesus does a great deal of his teaching in the temple precincts and then goes out into the Mount of Olives and teaches his disciples. And a whole chunk of the passage uh, of Matthew 21 to 27 belongs to this one day. It was a very big day in this particular week. Thursday was an important day because that's the day they went and prepared the Passover meal and Jesus ate it with his disciples and then left in the evening, went out to the Garden of Gethsemane, was ultimately arrested. And during the night, it seems that things just kept going and by the early hours of Friday morning, Jesus was found guilty by the Jewish authorities and taken to the Roman authorities and by three o'clock on the Friday, Jesus was dead. Saturday, he lay in the tomb. The following Sunday, he rose from the dead. You can understand why the gospel writers concentrate so much on this one week in the life of Jesus. And seeing and understanding what goes on in this one week helps us understand who Jesus is and why he came. The great climax of his teaching about the kingdom of heaven being near. There's another way of looking at it, and I've cogged this one from my NIV study Bible. Again, just in case I get into trouble for copyright for this one. This is a slightly different approach. You won't be able to read all the details, but that's not quite why I have it. I have it because of the maps, just to give you a sense of place. And if you've ever had the opportunity or the privilege of visiting Jerusalem and the areas around, if you've been in Jerusalem, you'll almost certainly have been taken up around the area of the Mount of Olives. Well, this is Jerusalem, as it would have been roughly in the time of Jesus you can see the significance of the temple area. A huge area that dominated Jerusalem and was perched at really the highest point of Jerusalem. And you can see the valley here and the road that leads up to Bethpage, which was mentioned, and Bethany, which is where Mary and Martha and Lazarus live. And there would have been lots of little villages like this. And people who were coming for Passover would have been spending their time in the outlying little villages with family, with friends, whatever, and then each day making the journey into Jerusalem. Jerusalem itself would have been absolutely packed, jam-packed, thronged with people coming from all over the Mediterranean lands uh, for this special feast of Passover. You can see from this that it has the arrival in Bethany on the Friday, 
a Sabbath day of rest on the Saturday and the triumphal entry on the Sunday and then the days of the week are worked out slightly differently from there but all the key events are the same and what I want you to have in your mind is this idea of Jesus arriving in Bethany with Mary, with Martha and Lazarus and his disciples and the people who have travelled with him from Jericho uh, because that's the road to Jericho disappearing down there they're spending some time um, Jesus no doubt is getting organised for what's about to happen in the week that comes and then each day They make this journey. They go into the city and they come out in the evening. They go into the city and they come out in the evening and thousands and thousands of people would have been doing the same kind of thing. So that's the impression that you get as you look at this passage uh, of what is going on. And you've got to see and try and keep in your minds this big picture because you can read all the text. There's lots of interesting details and things you want to think about but you can lose the sense of the big picture. And Matthew is is, is trying to make sure, as all the gospel writers are, that we have a sense of the importance of the events of this particular week in the life of Jesus and how they hang together. So that's the first thing I want to do. The second thing I want to do is take a minute or two to think about the verses that Daniel read for us. Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 to 22, by way of introduction. And I want to do this in two ways. I want to think a little bit about the events that he describes And then quite simply, I want to ask a couple of questions that for me arise as reflections on the passage. Earlier, Roy was leading us in prayer. And when he was leading us in prayer, he led us, I think, very helpfully and appropriately to think about the incidents and the deaths that uh, occurred this year at the Hajj in Mecca. I don't know whether you saw any of the television pictures of that particular event. It is huge. There is nothing that I know of, certainly in this country, Uh, that begins to compare with the scale of the pilgrimage that takes place to Mecca every year. So it's very hard for us in Northern Ireland, where the nearest thing you have to compare is the Northwest 2000 or the 12th or Slain Castle or something. It's very hard for us to begin to get any sense of what it looks like to see tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people encamping on a city uh, in religious pilgrimage. But as you think about some of the images of the Hajj, as as you might have seen them on television or seen them in the newspapers in the last week, you're maybe beginning to get a sense of the nature of events in Jerusalem. Context couldn't be more different. But when Jerusalem was there, when the temple was there, when it was still the center and the focus of Jewish religious life and worship, the, the sense of people moving in on Jerusalem can only be like what you would see today in Mecca. In, uh, in Islam and that's the kind of thing you have to have in mind as you read Matthew 21 and the other Gospels and think about what's going on here and it seems to me that because of the way Matthew records this in contracting the time in not making a distinction between the days in quite the same way as the others that Matthew's primary concern is to help us understand the significance of events not just their timing and I think this is true particularly in the passage that Daniel read for us And it's clear to me that the whole episode, um, the entry into Jerusalem, the clearing of the temple, was all carefully planned and staged by Jesus. I have to say, I would not normally have thought that way. It's been thinking about this passage and thinking about this morning that has made me think about it a little differently. I've tended to read it as the next bit in Matthew's Gospel. I've tended to read it as, wasn't it convenient that Jesus knew there was somebody who had a donkey a little bit down the road? I've tended to read it in a very casual kind of way. But as you step back and as you look at the events and the way they all fit together, it's clear that Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. 
it's clear that Jesus planned this whole entry. It's clear that having entered Jerusalem on either the Sunday or the Monday, he went back to Bethany that evening, thought about what he was going to do the next day, and went into the temple and did it. And Matthew brings them all together because he sees great significance in these events and wants us to understand it. The entry on a donkey, in itself really very interesting. Or as Matthew, in fine detail, says, a colt, the foal of a donkey. The entry on a donkey has all kinds of interesting Old Testament background to it. There was this great expectation of arrival into Jerusalem by God's anointed, by the Messiah. You can read about it in Isaiah chapter 35, for example, a passage which refers to a highway of holiness being prepared for God's uh, anointed and Messiah when the day of joy and celebration occurs in Jerusalem. You can read about it in Isaiah chapter 40, which begins with those well-known words, particularly if you know Handel's Messiah, which uses them as the introduction, comfort, comfort ye my people. And it has this, again, this whole image of God coming among his people. And the way in which he will come among his people is going to bring both judgment and salvation. So that in Isaiah 40 it says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, for her sin has been paid for. And it goes on to say, A voice of one calling, In the desert prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. In this sense of God coming among his people. So Jesus' entry into Jerusalem on this occasion and in this particular kind of way has very dramatic effect. And it's drawing from images in the Old Testament like Isaiah 35, like Isaiah 40, like Isaiah 62. You'll find it in all of those passages. And in Zechariah, another prophecy in the Old Testament in verse 9 of chapter 9, you read there about this anticipation of a deliverer coming into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. In 2 Samuel, you'll find records there of how David was helped by those whenever he was escaping from Jerusalem and then ultimately to return to Jerusalem and donkeys were prepared for them. And there's this whole sense, this whole planning and uh, copying of what is happening here at strategic points in the Old Testament. Even the idea of spreading coats has an Old Testament parallel in 2 Kings in chapter 9. The cry of the worshippers is recorded for us originally in Psalm 118 and verse 2. If you're following in the New International Version, and particularly in the church edition, if you just look at the very bottom of the pages of Matthew chapter 21, you'll see lots of very tiny writing at the bottom. And that writing is basically about Old Testament passages that are being quoted here. Not just the ones that are being referred to, but the ones that are being directly quoted. And you'll see that from verse 5 to verse 16, there are what? One, two, three, four, five direct quotes from various passages of the Old Testament. Never mind the other kinds of references that are being made with the rich symbolism of the donkey and the, the coats being thrown on the way as Jesus enters. So there's a lot going on here. And essentially what happens is that Matthew describes this as being a seismic event in Jerusalem. Verse 10, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. The word for stirred there apparently is the word from which we get seismic. You get this whole idea of this is really shaking the place. This is really shaking the people. This is not just something happening on the periphery. So you have the whole entry in a donkey. 
And everything about kingship, everything about entry into Jerusalem, everything about the Lord coming among his people, everything about him coming in judgment and coming in salvation is being acted out in a very public way. All the more so, given that, not only the traditional, but apparently the prescribed way to approach Jerusalem during the feast was on foot. And Jesus will have traveled up to Jerusalem for Passover many, many times. And almost certainly would have traveled on foot. He's just walked the whole way from Jericho to Bethany. Why does he need a donkey? It's no big distance, as you can see from the map here. If you're ever there and walk it, it's no great distance. So why does he break tradition? Why does he use a donkey? Why does he use it for such a short distance? Because of the symbolism. Because of what he's saying. Because of the, the, the shaking of people and ideas that he's going to do in doing this very simple thing. And then there's the temple. And again, there's lots of Old Testament background of the Lord coming into his temple, not just the city, but coming into the temple in judgment and salvation. And in the prophecy of Malachi chapter 3, in the, ver the first four verses, you'll get a very direct reference to this anticipation of God not just coming to his people, not just coming to the city, but coming to the temple and purifying the temple. I've got a few visuals here which I've also uh, stolen. That's a a photograph actually from the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem today. If you've ever been there, you can see um, the edge of the great wall of the city just in there. You can see now what is part of the great Islamic uh, worship center here in the Dome of the Rock. But this is the Mount of Olives region. And this is the journey that Jesus would have made, which lots and lots of people make as tourists uh, or pilgrims even today. But the temple itself was a hugely impressive place and tremendously important place for the, the, uh, the Jewish nation. This again is a kind of outline giving you a sense of the scale of it in relation to the overall city and the kind of approach that Jesus would have made into it. At one of the hotels in Jerusalem, if you go there, uh, one of the hotels, <coughs> I think it's called the Holy Land Hotel, has um, a kind of to scale model built of Jerusalem in the time of the second temple period, which is the time of Jesus. And it is fascinating because they've tried as best they can from archaeological evidence and all the rest to recreate Jerusalem in miniature. It's like a sort of model railway village or something like that. It's quite spectacular. And there's a group of um, people in America in one of the universities have taken that particular model and from that model have built a kind of interactive um, model for them to use in schools and universities. And they have taken the drawings and created these kinds of things. And they're useful just to give you a sense of the scale of the place. So here you have the temple that, as you would have seen it from within Jerusalem probably, absolutely dominating the city, sitting on the highest point. So the city itself is on a hill. The city itself is hugely significant for the, the Jewish nation. But here is the temple dominating everything. And you can see along the, the edge, just above the temple walls, some of the colonnades. And as you would approach from a slightly different angle, you can see rising up the main temple area, the main area in which would have been contained, the Holy of Holies. And this huge outer area running right round would all have been part of the court of the Gentiles. It would all have been part of that huge area into which visitors were allowed. But then there would have been the restricted area beyond that. And if you were to come in through some of the doors, some of the great gates, which may have looked like this, hugely impressive as you rose up from the valleys or the streets all around, you'd have gone up through all of these uh, great steps, you would have opened out into a fantastic arena. It was a huge place. I don't know what your mental image of the temple is, 
But if it's a small one, you've got to get rid of this. It, it was a massive place, which at Jerusalem, Passover time would have been teeming with people. And as you would have come in through some of the gates, this is probably the kind of thing that you would have seen, except it would have been absolutely packed with people. And as you stood behind some of the colonnades, you would have seen the perimeter of the inner courtyards where the main temple activities took place. And in these outer areas, that's where the trading would have, would have happened. And if you had come from Galilee in the north, or if you'd come up from North Africa, or if you'd come from somewhere else, you wouldn't have brought your sacrifice with you. You would have bought it here. You probably wouldn't have had the right money for your temple tax, so you would have had your money changed here so that your Roman currency or whatever else you were carrying could be changed into the proper temple currency. And this huge area, but you can see the perimeter of an area that was cut off again beyond that, inside which was the area where the sacrifices were made, beyond which was the Holy of Holies. So you've got to think of Jerusalem and the temple on this vast scale. So the next day Jesus comes into Jerusalem. There's no particular sense that he comes riding on a donkey or any need to do that. But he comes with a purpose. And this time the purpose is to visit a temple. And all the imagery here is clearly the imagery of the expected one. The Christ. The Messiah coming to purify God's people. To put right everything that has been wrong. Jeremiah 7 and verse 11 is part of the background. You can see the reference to it there in the footnotes in the text of the New International Version. Where in Jeremiah, if you read the whole of the chapter, it's very interesting. Jeremiah is talking about the unfaithfulness of God's people. He's talking about the hypocrisy of the worship. He's not so much complaining about what actually takes place in the temple in his day. What he's complaining about is that it's so far removed from the lives of the people. So that they come and they make their sacrifices. And they do it all in the prescribed way. And they do it to order and all the rest of it. But the injustice, the cheating, the disobedience, the immorality that is the hallmark of their lives bears no resemblance to what they do when they come together in the temple. And that seems to be the key issue that drives Jesus at this particular point. And very often you will find in the New Testament, when there are quotes from the Old Testament, that a snippet is used. A line to take you back, to take you in, which the people of the day would fully have understood. And the quote from Jeremiah 7 that Jesus uses, or that is used here when Jesus is clearing out the temple is something that would have spoken volumes. Maybe Matthew is simply only using shorthand here in recording that one little bit to help us understand that what Jesus is dealing with here is the same kind of issue that Jeremiah was dealing with. The lack of integrity. The lack of meaning, the lack of purpose in what was going on here in this huge place with all this money being changed and all these sacrifices. And I think it's good to think in these terms because it's, I think, too simplistic to think that Jesus was just annoyed about the money changing and the buying and the selling. The buying and the selling and the money changing had been going on for a very long period of time. It was in the court of the Gentiles. It was not just the issue of buying and selling not just the issue of corruption and inflated prices. It's that none of this stuff, as far as Jesus can see, bears any resemblance to the true worship of God anymore. It's about ritual. It's about power. It's about all kinds of things. But is it about seeking to love and to serve God? And this is what Jesus has come to challenge and what Jesus has come to put right. And the other really interesting thing that's happening here with Jesus going into the temple very deliberately is that for the first time, 
the chief priests are now being drawn into conflict with Jesus. The whole way through, when Jesus is up in Galilee, when Jesus is in different places, the chief priests don't really figure in this because this is their home. This is where they work. This is where they live. But they're a hugely powerful body of people. It's the Pharisees. It's the Sadducees. It's the scribes. It's the people who run the synagogues who most of the time are concerned about Jesus' heresy, concerned about putting him right, concerned about the fact that he heals on the Sabbath. But now in coming into the temple, in turning things upside down, in quoting Jeremiah, and depicting the separation between God and his people at this particular point because of their lives and their attitudes and their lifestyles, Jesus engages the chief priests head on because they hold the power. This is their arena. Jesus and dozens like him can do whatever they like in Galilee. The temple is the key place. The temple is where God resides. The temple is where religion has to be kept pure. We can live with heresy on the fridges. The fringes. But now Jesus engages the chief priests. And in the rest of Matthew's Gospel, you will discover that the chief priests play a very central role in the death of Jesus. When Jesus turns over all the tables, when Jesus is saying about this should be a house of prayer, it's also a reference to the fact that this should be a house of prayer for all nations, which is the rest of the quote, which some of the other Gospel writers have. Matthew seems to simply be abbreviated. And in the court of the Gentiles, Jesus is saying this place is supposed to be not simply for you people to come and trade and salve your conscience. This is supposed to be a gathering place for the nations. Which was certainly not how it was viewed at that particular time. And yet it prefigures the idea of Jesus in his death and resurrection being the gathering point of the nations like you and me brought into a relationship with God through him. And look at verse 14 of chapter 21. Another little thing that goes on in the temple. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. So what? Doesn't that always happen? Well, the answer is no, it doesn't always happen. In 2 Samuel chapter 5, and even in Jesus' day, it was prescribed that those who were blind or lame were to be excluded from the temple. In Acts chapter 3, do you remember the story of Peter and John going up to the temple and they find a man sitting at the gate of the temple? And the scripture tells us he was left at the gate every day to beg from those going in because he wasn't allowed to go any further. But Jesus has entered the temple. Jesus has caused chaos and consternation in what he's doing in the temple. And lo and behold, not only does he cause chaos, not only does he demand that this actually be a gathering place for the nations, but he brings the outcasts in. And he doesn't chase them back out as he should have done in the eyes of many people. He transforms them. He makes them whole. He changes their lives. He includes them into what is happening here at this particular time in Jesus' ministry. Everything that Jesus is doing here is creating chaos in the minds of those who were in charge of the temple area. Even his accepting the praise do you hear what these children are saying, they asked him in verse 16? Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise? A reference to the praise of God. Is he going to rebuke these children? He's going to accept their praise. What is going on in these few verses is 
hugely significant. There is so much going on here. The king is coming into his city. The Lord is coming to his temple. He's receiving and accepting the ascriptions of praise. He's denouncing empty religion. He's foreshadowing the end of this whole sacrificial system. He's healing and including the sick and the lame, the Gentiles and the outcasts. He's challenging the authorities. And one thing's for sure, there's no going back. Three simple reflections on this passage. Three questions I'd want to leave with you. Who is your Jesus? Is your Jesus outrageous? Is your religion fruitless? Some years ago, when we had a different structure to church life, we had um, more of a traditional Sunday school at the time. We had a Sunday school outing. If you've ever been brought up in Sunday school, you'll know about Sunday school outings. And um, it was time to have something to eat. We were up at that park. Is it Carnfunnock Park near Larne? And um, I sat down on a bench, a picnic bench. And I'll not mention the name so I don't cause any embarrassment. But there was one of the children sitting beside me. And I opened my tonics marshmallow or whatever it was. I was having, I don't know what it was. And uh, this little voice says to me, You Jesus? And I looked and said, I thought I'd heard him right. I said, No, no, no. My name's David. My name's David. My name's not Jesus. And the wee voice comes again, You Jesus? And I think I tried a second time to sort of indicate, no, I'm not Jesus. And the little voice simply said, you Jesus. And left it at that. I was absolutely horrified when I started to think about this. If this child said its prayers, which I suspect it probably did, and asked Jesus to bless mommy and daddy, or asked Jesus for anything else, he actually seemed to be thinking, that it was me who was going to deliver. It was a horrific thought. I think he'd been put up to it by another member of the family who, some, who one day had said, that's Jesus, just to wind him up. But being a young child, as young children do, he took it literally and thought I was Jesus. What does your Jesus look like? Who is your Jesus? Because it seems to me that Jesus gets lost for so many of us, myself included. He gets lost in the theology. He gets lost in the tradition. He gets lost in my apathy. He gets lost in my confusion. He gets reduced to something that I can manageably live with. He becomes something or someone with whom I am comfortable. He becomes something more remote so that he makes no immediate demands. He becomes something basically more manageable. Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee, they said, even the language, the prophet, some of them were beginning to twig that something great might just be about to happen here. No one enters Jerusalem like this with, with, unless they have a mission. But they had no real understanding as yet as to who Jesus was. And as I read this, I am challenged about myself. Because I'm just one of the crowd heading to Jerusalem. I'm just one of the tens of thousands thronging the road. I might have been there throwing my cloak on the ground because everybody else was doing it and waving palm branches. 
But who is this Jesus? The one I cry, save Lord to. One of the core things for us as Christians is that we need to have not a, an, ex, an extravagantly theological definition of who Jesus is, but we need to have a clear sense of who Jesus is as the Son of God, as God incarnate, as the Savior of the world, as the King of kings, as the one who will judge all people and all things. It's the one who will rule in a new heaven and a new earth in absolute righteousness. We need to have a sense of the greatness and the glory of Jesus. And at the same time have a sense of his understanding our humanity. As a man who actually sat on a donkey and went into Jerusalem. Who is your Jesus? Is it someone you truly praise and worship? Someone you want to know in that way? Or someone just lost in the words of the hymns? An ancient figure, far removed. Is your Jesus outrageous? I think the thing that really rocked me a bit in looking at this passage was the idea that this was planned. I'd love us to write another little bit to the sketch that we did last week and have Jesus and Lazarus having a conversation. Just my imagination. Absolutely no grounds for it really, but you know. They're having a meal and a conversation over the meal and Jesus says to Lazarus, I need a donkey. What do you need a donkey for? I want a donkey when I go into Jerusalem. Can you just imagine the conversation taking place? Oh, I know a guy up there at the House of Figs, which is what Beth Page was called. He has got a donkey. In fact, he's got a colt and a donkey. I could have a word with him. And the conversation goes, because this was not just something wacky that happened to happen. Jesus knew what he was doing when he would enter this way. Tens of thousands of people cramming the paths and the roads on foot and he comes in a donkey. And his disciples singing his praise and the people joining in. And it's the idea that he had thought about this. It's going into the temple and it's in the vastness of that arena starting to cause mayhem by turning over tables. It's outrageous behaviour. But the Jesus that I think of is all too often a Jesus who is as conservative as I am. A Jesus who is as tame as I am. Because I don't really want the Jesus that I worship to be out there ahead of me. I'd like him beside me. And I like the songs that talk about Jesus being with me. That's good. That gives me a measure of comfort. That gives me a measure of knowing that, well, you know, Jesus will see me through. And I like those sort of songs and hymns and I like that image and I like that idea in my head but I don't really like the idea of Jesus being out ahead of me. That frightens me. Because that means he might do things or want to do things or challenge things about me that I would rather just leave as they are. Yet here is Jesus. I wonder where the disciples were. I wonder what they were making of Jesus kicking over tables and causing an absolute furore in the temple precincts. There's no record that they joined in. Maybe they did a runner. Maybe they were hiding and melting into the crowd. I really don't know. But very often the Jesus that I think of and the Jesus that I want to worship is a Jesus that I can contain who won't challenge me. But Jesus challenges everything. Just like using the words of Jeremiah chapter 7. 
He challenges the integrity of my Christian life. He's not interested in me being here at the front as a pastor of this church and simply performing because either you pay me to do it or because it looks good or because I'm too embarrassed to think of something else to do or too unemployable. He's not interested in those kinds of things. The demands that Jesus makes are for integrity and reality and truthfulness about worship, about how I live, about how I think, and he makes the same demands of all of us. Is your religion fruitless? The celebration of the Passover, with the tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people coming, must have made the chief priests and and, and the leaders there think, we're doing okay. We might not have kicked the Romans out yet, but we're doing okay. The structure of the temple, huge structure, you know, we're doing okay. The revenue's coming in. We're refurbishing it as we need to. The people are here. These are huge successes. But they're also completely bankrupt and fruitless, which seems to be the significance of the fig tree. As Jesus approaches the fig tree, it's barren. It's an image, a kind of acted out parable of Jesus approaching Jerusalem, of Jesus approaching the temple. It's barren. And it's cursed. And it's about to wither. And it's about to die. Now the disciples don't see the link. They're more interested not in why Jesus says this about the fig tree. But how on earth he managed to do it. That's a great trick Jesus. What's the secret? So Jesus simply, I think, engages with them at the level they're at. At that particular time. Someday they'll understand it. But they don't get the significance. They don't even think of asking the significance. They just want to know how you do this sort of trick. And Jesus says things like, well, you know, if you had enough faith, you could say to this mountain. What mountain? What mountain is he talking about? Mount of Olives? Or the Temple Mount, possibly? You could say to this mountain, be thrown into the sea. Religion can be utterly fruitless. Our evangelicalism, our church, Windsor Baptist, a fair number of people here this morning, can all be seen as a success, but may in fact for some of us or all of us be no more than ritualized religion. It's not hard to organize a decent club. There's lots of them all around the city. Some of them deal with sports, some of them deal with politics, some of them deal with all kinds of things. Our religion can be bankrupt. Just because it's working doesn't mean it's real. What would Jesus do with us? What would Jesus do with Windsor? What would Jesus do with me? What's the level of my integrity in my daily life? What's the reality of my faith and trust in Jesus Christ? As I watch him enter the city, as I think about how carefully it was planned, as I watch him come back into the temple and turn everything upside down and cause absolute mayhem, as I see him approach the fig tree, I'm challenged about myself. I'm challenged about what it means to be a Christian and to live as a Christian. And I hope you are too, because it would be really good for us if we asked some of these questions.